Good morning. Good morning. Sorry about the little snafu. I'm still getting my head straight after being gone for a couple of weeks. So, <laughs> But it's good to be back. I'm Florence Johnson, and I will be reading our scripture passage this morning. This passage this morning is from Genesis chapter 14. I'll be reading from verses 1 through 24. If you're reading in the Pew Bible, you can just open to page 9 right at the beginning. 11. I believe I'm only going to start at verse 11 and go to verse 24 from there. So skip ahead a little bit. And that's nice because there's a lot of really hard names in the first 10 verses. So you don't have to listen to that part now. All right, starting in verse 11. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions and went their way. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and of Aner. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. After his return from the defeat of Keterleomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheva, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten, and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eshkel, and Mamre take their share. This is God's word. Thank you, Florence. <clears throat> I think you would have done great reading verse 1 onward. I really do. That was really well read. And uh, both readers were very good for both services. Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Michael Aiken, and I'm one of your pastor elders, and I'll be delivering the message here this morning. And I'm going to open in prayer, and we're going to get into our text here this morning, Genesis chapter 14. So let's, let's go to our Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we, we pause to just uh, thank you for who you are first and foremost, Lord. We, we ask you that, to help us to worship you in our spirit and in truth and to keep our minds focused on you as you reveal yourself in your word as we read in the text you are god most high you are existence itself in your name yahweh you are the great i am and i pray lord that you would keep us from worshiping idols in our hearts you know lord our our fallenness, and we thank you for the Spirit of God who lives in us, who believe that you are continuing to do a good work of making us more holy, making us more like Jesus. 
in our thoughts, words, and deeds. And we are, we're thankful that you forgive us of our sins. Um, we are undeserving of this, and we thank you for the forgiveness that we receive, and that as we confess our sins, we have that family forgiveness and that closeness of relationship with you and the joy of our salvation as we confess our sins to you daily. And we thank you that you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We ask you now as the word is preached that you would open our eyes, uh, open the eyes to our heart to understand. Um, and may we just bring you glory. That's our prayer in the name of Jesus. Amen. So this morning we are continuing to look at the life of Abram in Genesis chapter 14. So if you have your Bible, I don't know what number it is in the Pew Bible there, but the nice thing is Genesis is in the beginning of the Bible, and uh, chapter 14 is where we are today. And in this chapter, it's really interesting, we see Abram acting as the king of the land. God has given him, the king of the land that God has given him. And he does this, by answering the call to duty. I think there was a movie named The Call to Duty. I didn't Google it and check it out, but uh, that's what I've titled this message this morning, The Call, or When Duty Calls. That's the title of the message this morning, When Duty Calls. There are, are two main points that I want you to see, so I have like a little roadmap for our message here this morning. Two major points. The first is the man of duty. The man of duty. That's going to be Abram. Secondly, the God of duty. So the man of duty is verses 1 through 16, and then the God of duty is verses 17 to 24. Now, we, we skipped out a whole section of Scripture there, just because there's a lot of very difficult names there. If you've read that before you came here, you probably thought, oh boy, I hope I don't have to read scripture this morning, though Florence would have done it well. And we're looking here at the man of duty in verses 1 through 16. So the man of duty is Abram, and what he does in chapter 14, he shows his trust in the God who had called him to leave his hometown of Ur and to settle in a land that God was giving him. So we see this in the promise in chapter 12. He is to leave, and God says he will bless him, he will make of him a great nation. We see in that chapter 12, what we do see is Abram failing the test. When he didn't trust God in Egypt by saying he should have trusted God and said that Sarah was his wife instead, he said she was his sister because he was afraid and he wasn't trusting God. That's why he said that she was his sister, which was a half-truth. We know that. But the good news is Abram repented and returned to the promised land a stronger man. That's the good news of all this. And before we go any further, <clears throat> this point, under this point, the man of duty, I want to ask you a question do you struggle with using the word duty in your relationship with God? You can be honest. Now, I'm not asking you to speak out now. That would be really interesting to get a lot of response. But the word duty, do you struggle with that word 
in describing your relationship with God. In other words, that you have a duty before God. Duty can be a word that brings up the notion of doing things just because you are required to do them with little heart or with no heart in it. We all can relate to this type of duty, can we not? As a child, do you remember being asked to take the trash out or to clean up your room or to make your bed and doing it with a bad attitude. I'm sure none of you can relate to that, right? We all can. We don't like to be told what to do. And, uh, but our parents want us, they're trying to teach us, they're trying, they want us to be responsible, and so they have things that they want us to do. It's a good thing, but we do our duty, but just for duty's sake, not with a good attitude. And I want to say that's doing duty the wrong way. That's not what I have in mind here. That's what's not in view here in Genesis chapter 14. I want, you, I want to redeem the word duty. It is a good word. I want you to look at it as God's will for your life. Our duty is to love God with all our heart, soul, and mind, with everything within us. And secondly, it is to love our neighbor as ourselves. Uh, the Westminster Shorter Catechism in question three asks this, what do the scriptures principally teach? And the answer is, the scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. There's that word duty again. What duty God requires of mankind, of all people. God requires certain things. And as I've just said, we look to Jesus. He tells us the greatest commandment is to love God with all our heart and to love our neighbor as ourself. So when you and I do what God wants us to do out of a love for him, then the duty is done with the right motive. And this rightly motivated duty is a good work. So it's really important, that internal component between us and the Lord. We know, you and I know, from now until we go to home to be with the Lord, until we're in a glorified state, we are going to struggle as long as we have this flesh, this sinful nature. We're going to struggle with doing things for the glory of God, doing them out of a love for God. And so for adults, when we go and do our job, do we do that with a good attitude? When we do, you are doing it. You're doing your duty properly for the glory of God. That's good. And for every boy and girl that's here, I know there's no Sunday school and there might be some boys and girls in here. When the chores you have to do because your parents want you to do them. When you do that with a good attitude, you are doing it for the glory of God also. I love 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether therefore you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Abraham's duty before God was to rescue nephew, his nephew Lot. And he did this by pursuing the enemy 
The enemy that took him and actually took the city, Sodom, Gomorrah, three other cities we see there. Who did this, you might ask? Well, this is what we see in chapter 14, verses 1 through 10. In, it starts in verse 1, in the days of, <clears throat> excuse me, Amprophel, king of Shinar. So that's the start of the kings, and you can just read that, and it's like, wow, all these kings. But I'll go through them here. There are four kings, so it's four kings against five kings. But the four kings are strong overlords, international overlords. And they conquered the area previously, obviously, because these five kings in the valley of the Jordan, this is around the Dead Sea, they are paying tribute, they are paying taxes to these four strong overlord international kings. So these five kings that are doing this, that are paying the tribute, they are named in verse 2. But they said after 12 years of paying taxes, that's it, no more. They refused to pay taxes in the 13th year, And we see in the scripture here in the 14th year, then four international overlords who are named in verse 1. Florence pronounces it better than I do. Uh, Kedorlaomer, king of Elam, that's modern Iraq. And Amraphel, king of Shinar. Excuse me. So let's, let's stop a minute here. Kedorlaomer, king of Elam, that's modern Iran. And then Amraphel, king of Shinar, that is modern Iraq. Or you could look at it as ancient Babylon. And then we have Arioch and Tidal. They were from what is modern-day Turkey. When Abram finds out that what the four international kings have done, that in other words, they captured five cities and they took Lot, that's his nephew, and they took other prisoners with them and possessions. What did Abraham do? He chased them. He got his 318 men and they pursued them. And they were able, they, this small army was able by stealth at a night time to rescue Lot and the other people and their possessions. And they brought them back. They brought them back to the King's Valley, we say. And we see that Abram is bold and victorious. He is acting as a king in his rescue of Lot. And so this is the man of duty. And I want you to see that this man of duty is magnanimous. That's what Abram is, and we see this in reading verses 13 through 16. So let's read what I've just tried to describe here. Then one who had escaped, so one escaped and came and told Abram the Hebrew. That's the first time he is called the Hebrew in the Bible. And he was living by the oaks of Mamre. That's a man's name. He was the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and of Aner. These were allies of Abram. They were in a covenant relationship with Abram. So they were, uh, your translation might even use the word confederacy. So they were in union with one another. And when Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. That's the northern part 
of the promised land. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants. He defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. So they were all brought back. God gave Abram a great victory here. This is the man of duty doing his responsibility before the Lord, loving his neighbor, loving his God by doing this. And when Abram heard what happened, this is what I want you to see, what a magnanimous man he is. When he heard what happened to his nephew Lot, he could have said this very self-righteously. Well, that's what he gets for picking the nicer looking land. You know, the, he chose the bigger slices of pizza. Remember those pictures up on the board last, or the screen last week? Benjamin was trying to show us the, the contrast between the, the one part of the land that looked nicer than the part that Abram ended up with. He could have, Abram could have been a man who was very petty and very self-righteous and said that's what he gets for picking the nicer looking land and going to live in the city of Sodom. I mean, you know what the Bible tells us in Genesis 13, 13, Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. That's a quotation. That's Genesis 13, 13. Abram could have also said this. You know, Lot, you made your bed. Now just sleep in it. That's it. You got captured. That's what you get for going toward that city of Sodom and living with those folks there. You deserve it. He could have said that, but he didn't. He's a magnanimous man. He's a man of duty. He does the right thing out of his love for God. And his love for his relatives, his relative, his neighbor, Lot, and the other people. Abram doesn't let the bad decision of Lot cloud his sense of duty. He feels a sense of compulsion to rescue someone who has made, yes, foolish decisions. We don't deny that. The Bible doesn't brush over that. God is showing us in this text, that Abram is a big-hearted man who is willing to help someone in need despite their bad decisions. This shows us that Abram is magnanimous. I love that word. I got that from Ken Hughes in his commentary, magnanimous. This means Abram wasn't petty. It means he was virtuous by being of a great heart, a big heart and a big mind, great mind. He was willing to face the danger and did a noble thing in rescuing Lot and the five kings who were defeated and being carried away by these four international overlords. And so let's ask the question, am I a person of duty? Are you a person of duty like Abram? Are you willing to overlook the bad decisions someone made and to help them in their time of need. That's real difficult for us. If feelings get involved, man, that's, that's tough. Someone really made some poor choices. We can get very self-righteous, and we need to take a pause here. Maybe it's a very close relative who has hurt you. Maybe someone very close, a friend who may have hurt you. And I just say this, I'm not going to dwell on it, but may the Lord give us, give you wisdom 
as we seek to be people of duty. Abram was the man of duty. So I've wanted you to see up to this point that Abram is a great man of faith who was a man of duty. But more importantly, I want you to see our second point for today, the God of duty. Behind this great act which Abram and his small army performed is the God who made it all possible. The God who promised to bless him. The God who said, those who bless Abraham, who are good to him, I will be good to them. I will bless them. And those who curse Abram will be cursed. I want you to see this God. So let's look at this God of duty. This is found in verses 17 through 24. And we're going to read that again. Verses 17 through 24. After his return, verse 17, after his return, Genesis 14, 17, after his return from the defeat of Chador Laomer and the kings who were with him and the king of Sodom, and the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley. It's probably east of Jerusalem. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I, made, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Anner, Eshkol, and Mamre take their share. Under this point of the God of duty, I would like you to see four different things, subpoints, under this point, this big point, the God of duty. The first point that I would like you to see under this God of duty is that when Abram returns from victory, he is met by two kings. I would like you to see the contrast of the two kings. The first is the king of Sodom. He's found in verse 17 and verse 21. The second, this is, I know David, you love alliteration. So we have the king of Sodom and the second is the king of Salem. Probably Jerusalem. Salem means peace. We will first look at the king of Salem. His name is, have you ever heard of him before? Melchizedek. And look at what he does. He brings provisions for Abram and his 318 men. He cares for their physical needs first when he, what's he do? He brings wine and bread. And then he preaches a sermon. Now, how do you like this sermon? It's just a couple verses, nice and short. 
And starting in verse 19, here's the sermon. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Melchizedek, that's the sermon. Melchizedek, the king of Salem, is a king of righteousness. This is the meaning of his name. Now, he might have had another name, but we know he's called here Melchizedek, king of righteousness. He stands for righteousness, that which is right, that which, which is God's character. The law of God reveals who our God is. It's his character. And so he stands for what is righteous, what is right, which comes again from the Lord. He is the priest also, priest of God. God is called here God Most High. A priest is a mediator between God and man. That's a priest, someone who stands between the Lord and the people. He mediates. And Melchizedek, who we know little about, is only mentioned once in the entire Old Testament in a historical sense. So historically, as a historical person who actually has a birthday and a death, though we don't know what they are, but we know he is a real person, and historically he's only mentioned once. He's interacting with Abram, and it's in this chapter. As I mentioned, he's a real man who is, it's very unique here. He is a priest and a king. He's a priest king. He worshiped, this is very significant. I want you to catch this. He worshiped the same God that Abram did. Though he's a Canaanite, he's a Gentile. And he worships the same God, the God most high. He gave God the credit for the victory after the battle. He's rejoicing, giving God the glory. What a marvelous thing happened here. Abram did this with such a small army. And as a worshiper of the only true living God, he realized, did Melchizedek, and he says it basically, the Lord's given you, he's handed the enemies into your hand. He, he's, he said it, we think of it this way, he basically realized that the battle belongs to the Lord. That's an exact quote of what King David said a thousand years later before he slew the, the giant Goliath. He said the battle belongs to the Lord. Abram was blessed by God. He put his trust in God to win the battle over these four powerful kings who came into the Jordan Valley. God most high. What does that mean? I like what Matthew Henry said. It refers to his absolute perfections in himself. So God in himself is absolute perfection. He's eternal. He's uncreated. He is not composed of parts. You might say, what's the big deal there? Because he is this God most high who is simple, meaning he's not composed of parts, that means he won't fall apart for you. He is this type of God. He is sovereign. This God most high means he is sovereign over all. He has sovereign dominion over all the creatures. And Matthew Henry says this, he is king of kings. That's what it means that God is most high. 
In contrast, though, so that's the king of Salem and what he said and what he believes and who he's worshiping and whose side he's on, who he loves. He loves God. In contrast to this king, now we look to the king of Sodom, and his name is Berah, or Berah, B-E-R-A, who is the king, a king of unrighteousness. He wants to negotiate with Abram. He doesn't give God the glory for the victory. He's concerned about what he's going to get. He does not worship the living God, but he worships idols. How do we know this? We know this by the life of sexual sin which characterized Sodom. As you go on, Abram rescued Lot. This isn't the only time Abram's going to rescue Lot. He's going to rescue him in chapter 18 by praying for him. That shows the magnanimous character of Abram again. So Abram could have, get this, Abram could have rightfully taken the people as well as all the material goods because he was the victor in the battle. Let that sink in. He didn't exercise his rights here. Abram is showing by this example here that God is the provider. He's the rewarder. And God is his provider and his reward. We could even say that God is, as we sang the song, God is our inheritance, be thou my vision. We're going to also see another phrase in that hymn coming through in Abram's behavior here, uh, riches I heed not in that song as well. I think of, this is anticipating what I'm saying about God being our reward. When we, when we look at Genesis 15.1, we're going to see that, that God is the one who rewards Abram. And some translations even say it, that God is the reward for Abram. And you can see throughout Scripture that God is the inheritance of every true believer in him. I love what Psalm 73, 25 says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing I desire upon earth but you, the Lord. I love that psalm. I mean, he was, the psalmist in Psalm 73 was ready to just go the other way, ready to give up. And he, he comes at the end of Psalm 73. It's one of my favorite psalms, just praising the Lord. Uh, My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart. That's how it ends there in Psalm 73. Abram's God is the possessor, the creator. The NIV uses the word creator. Other translations use the word creator. That's a good translation as well. So both are legitimate, possessor or creator. When you create, and only God is the one who can create out of nothing, you're now the owner. It's yours. And you and I are part of that creation. We don't belong to ourselves. We belong to God. He is Abram's provider. He is the one who is blessing Abram. He's not just material things. He's giving him his kindness. He's being gracious to him. That's what blessing is. It's giving kindness to someone. That's blessing. Bera, the king of Sodom, doesn't want to lose the people. They're rightfully now Abrams. 
And so he's trying to make a deal with Abram. He says to Abram, give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. That's verse 21. Give me the persons. Can I have the persons? You can take the goods. You can take all the possessions. Notice Abram's response in verses 22 through 24. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord. Lord, whenever you see in the Bible, Lord, L, all capitals, has to be all capitals, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That's referring to the Hebrew word Yahweh. Yahweh is the covenant name of God. It means basically this, I am, I exist. You can't say that about yourself. I can't say that about myself. I had a beginning. I can't say I'm existence. God has always existence. He's existence itself. He's the uncreated one. He's the great I am. He is God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And the scripture here is saying, he says as he lifts his hand, I won't take a thread. Now I brought up here in my Bible, this isn't a thread, but I guess it could pass for a thread. It's a piece of string. Abram is saying, I won't take, I won't take even a little thread. Nothing like that. Not a strap to hold my sandal. I won't take anything from you. Nothing, says Abram here, that is yours. Lest you should say, I've made Abram rich. And I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre take their share. It's like Abram won the lottery and said, forget it, I don't want it. I mean, Abram was offered millions of dollars, but he turned it down. Riches I heed not. In the song we sang, could you and I do the same thing? Let's be honest. When you, if you do something and it's of great expense to you, let's face it, that's hard. Abram's heart was trusting God here. You've got to love this. And this is an example for us. This is an inspiration for us. So we've just seen the contrast of the two kings. Now the second thing I want you to see under this point, the God of duty, is Abram's response. Abram's response to the priest-king Melchizedek. The last part of verse 20 says this. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. This shows us many things. I think it might be the first time we see a tenth being given in the Bible. It is a reflection of Abram's heart of worship and of gratitude to the Lord's grace. He gives graciously. He gives a tenth of his possessions to Melchizedek. And this shows... This shows his acceptance of Melchizedek's priesthood in his ministry. And I believe God wants us to give to his work, to his kingdom, to his church in the same way, out of a love for him and a love for others. God wants us to show love for him by giving generously. 
To help us in our giving, it is important that we meditate on God as the possessor, the creator of all things. Meaning, he owns it all. He created it all. We are not the owners. Ultimately, God is the altar. He's the owner. Our ownership is secondary. God's is primary. So we have seen the contrast of the two kings. And then Abram's response, giving a tithe. Now the third thing I want you to see under this point, the God of duty. And the third thing I'd like you to see is how Melchizedek and Abram encouraged each other and were not competitors. Oh man, I'll tell you what. If you get to know me, I am a competitor. <clears throat> to, my, to my detriment at times. And I think that as I've grown, as I've gotten older, as the Lord's matured me, it's not there like it used to be. But I, I struggle with point number three here. I want you to see that Melchizedek and Abram, they worship the same God. And, and by giving to Melchizedek, Abram was showing that Melchizedek was the greater of the two. I say, where do you get that? Well, if you go to Hebrews chapter 7, verses 1 through 10, you'll see that the scripture tells us there, I'm not going to read those seven verses, but it's Hebrews chapter 7, that you'll see that the, the greater blessed the lesser. Scripture tells us very clearly in Hebrews that, that Melchizedek was the greater than Abram. Isn't that a shocker? But notice there's no envy with these two men. They both loved the same God and they encouraged each other that day. And if I could just travel back in time, if that were possible, I would have loved to have seen these two men on this day. That would be really neat. Have you ever wanted to travel back in time? Well, you know, what period of time would you like to go to? I mean, this is just one of them. I mean, there's a lot of different ones I'd love to do, but this is one of them. They were brothers in the Lord and not competitors. And God loves when we are unified with other churches and believers in gospel ministry. For instance, the work day at the new church plant yesterday, Midtown Community Church, that's a great example of working together in unity and not being competitors. And the whole church plan itself is a work of unity. It is God's work. We are not competitors. I know, it, it seems strange. You know, we want to plant churches. We're, we don't, we're not in competition. We want the kingdom of God to, to spread. We want the gospel to spread. Psalm 133 just says it so well. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. That's what Melchizedek and Abram were doing that day, dwelling together in unity. So we have seen under the God of duty, we've seen three things so far. We've seen the contrast of the two kings. The king of Salem and the king of Sodom. And then we've seen Abram's response. He gives to the Lord. It's part of his worship. And then we've seen the unity of Abram and Melchizedek. What a great thing to see, the unity. And the fourth and the last thing I want you to see under this second point, that is, the point is the God of duty, the fourth sub-point that I'd like you to see is one word, Jesus. I want you to see Jesus. When we read the Old Testament, we should always be asking ourselves, where is Jesus in this text? 
So where are you at in your Old Testament? I'm assuming you're reading your Bible. Hope you're reading your Bible. Read the Old Testament often. Look for Jesus in the Old Testament. Yes. Why do you say that? Because Jesus taught us to read our Bibles this way when he taught us that the Old Testament points to him. That's what he was trying to get across to those knuckleheads in the Old Testament, those Pharisees and Sadducees, those who those religious leaders opposing him. He made it real clear. If you've read Moses, you, then you learned about me. And if Jesus were just a mere man, that's a very arrogant thing to say, but he's God. And it's not arrogant because he is the way, the truth, and the life. Luke 24, 44 tells us this. If you're taking notes and you want to know where in the New Testament does it say that the whole Bible is about Jesus. Luke 24, 44 says the whole Old Testament points to Christ. John chapter 5, verse 46 is another one. There's just to start. There's, there's others. The whole Bible, here's my point that I want to make. The whole Bible is red letter. The whole Old Testament is red letter. It's the words of Christ. Jesus is seen in the priest king Melchizedek. The Melchizedek is a type of Christ. A type is a symbol that points to Jesus. It's a shadow. Jesus is the substance. As I mentioned, Melchizedek is only mentioned one time historically, but there's a second time where he's mentioned in the Old Testament, but not in a historical fashion. He's mentioned in Psalm 110, verse 4, as like a prophecy showing that Jesus will be after the order of Melchizedek, his priesthood, that is. His priesthood will be according to the order of Melchizedek. So listen to the words of Psalm 110, verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Who is the you referring to? Jesus. Jesus, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. When you go then to the New Testament, Melchizedek is mentioned, and you might want to write these down, Hebrews chapter 5, verse 6. The same chapter 5, verse 10. Then you go to chapter 6 of Hebrews, verse 20. It's the last verse of that chapter. Then you go to the whole chapter 7. And he's mentioned many different times in Hebrews chapter 7. Jesus is truly God and truly man. He is the God-man. He has three offices. Do you know those three offices? We already see that he is priest and king... But we also see in Scripture that he is the prophet. So he is prophet, priest, and king. Those are the three offices of Jesus. He has also two states. <laughs> he has a state of humiliation, but first we would say a, a state of exaltation and then a state of humiliation. And his state of humiliation is when he came and took on flesh and died for our sins. So Jesus, as our high priest, is after the order of Melchizedek and not Levi. And therefore, his priesthood is an eternal priesthood. The Levitical priesthood was only temporary. Because we know that Jesus could not be a priest according to Old Testament requirements because he was not from the tribe of Levi, but from the tribe of Judah. That is, according to his human nature. 
but Melchizedek is pictured as having a priesthood which never ends. And he is not of the tribe of Judah, but he's a Gentile, in fact. We don't know about his genealogy, but I do believe he was a real historical person. We just don't have record of it. He, did, he was born on a certain day and he died a certain day. I don't believe he was a uh, pre-incarnate Christ. Some have conjectured that. Or an angel. I don't, I don't believe those fit with the historical narrative here. He is a real historical person. So what is the takeaway for today's message, you may ask? I have four different takeaways for you. First, we have a God who is a victor over his enemies. Abram's defeat of the enemy is a picture of the greatest defeat of Satan, sin, and death itself. The first mention of the gospel in the Bible is found in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Uh, this is called in Latin, it's called the Proto-Evangelium, proto which means first gospel. So this is what our our forefathers called the first gospel, Genesis 3.15. I'm going to quote it. And this, is in, this is the consequence of Adam and Eve sinning. God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. Now, speaking to the serpent, you, but the serpent is being moved by Satan. So there's going to be an enmity between Satan and the woman and between your offspring, that is Satan and his followers, and her offspring, that's Eve, he shall bruise your head. So he, the seed of the woman, shall bruise your head, Satan, and you shall bruise his heel. He shall bruise your head is Jesus in his crucifixion defeating Satan. That's the first takeaway. God in the gospel is bringing us victory by defeating the enemies that will destroy us, Satan and death and our sin itself. Secondly, we are encouraged by Abram's refusal of the king of Sodom to trust. So the, the, the offer was to take all the possessions. We're encouraged by this refusal and that the Lord will provide. The Lord is the one who will bless. We are encouraged to do the right thing when we're tempted to be dishonest. We are encouraged to trust God with our future and with the worries we have about provision for the future. Boy, this could be sermon upon sermon just on each one of these points. Uh, like we worry about things for the future, provision for the future, uh, retirement, how are you going to pay your bills? How are, how are you going to do it? I mean, I understand the struggle. My whole life, I, I, get, I get it. But we're encouraged to not love. Like, hear my words carefully here. We're encouraged not to love or trust our money. It's never to have a God position or to trust and love our 401k like it's our God or our investments that it's our God. I, the Bible's not against this. The Bible's not against planning for the future. In fact, we're encouraged to do that. You read all of Scripture, especially the Proverbs, we're encouraged to do that. So we're to plan for retirement, but not turn our money into a God. And so that's, may the Lord give us wisdom there, how to honor Him in that way. That's my second point, um, to just be encouraged by Abram's refusal to get rich by 
It would have been wrong in that particular situation. But thirdly, I want you to catch this, and this is a takeaway. The third takeaway is this. We have a great high priest, Jesus, who is pictured in the Old Testament by Melchizedek. We just touched on that just a little bit. He is the king of righteousness. Jesus, as our king and priest, did what no other priest could do. All other priests were sinners. They could never offer their lives as a sacrifice because they deserved to die. But Jesus offered himself as a sacrifice for, for the sins of others, for the sins of you and me, because he never sinned. His sacrifice is sufficient to satisfy the righteous requirement of God for sin. That is death eternal death, and to give us the gift of his righteousness, which we as sinners so desperately need. We need the righteousness of another because we have already broken the law of God in our thoughts, words, and our deeds. So praise God for Jesus. We see him in this text. And lastly, the last takeaway is this, that the man of duty, Abram, showed his love for God and others by going to war and rescuing those in need of deliverance. We also have duties or responsibilities before God in our home, at work, in our community, in our nation, in our world. May the God of duty, who is God most high, Yahweh, the great I am, who is existence himself, who alone does great wonders, according to Psalm 136, verse 4, may he give us the grace we need to walk with him by faith, each day until Jesus returns. Now let's pray. Lord, you give us um, your word, which we're reminded your word is a gift that you give us. We're thankful that it is your word that is sufficient for our faith and for our practice. We, we wish we knew more, we, sh we wish we had more, but you have made it clear that your word is sufficient. And we thank you for the clarity of your word. We thank you that you are a God who cares deeply for each one who is here today. You care for every person who is your creation. Help us, Lord, to be like Abram where we can be. We know he's unique. We're never going to be prophets. We'll never get direct revelations like Abram. But we know that there is something that we can glean from this, that there is a man who knew he needed to care for someone who was in need, and he did it. May we do the same, Lord. May we be magnanimous like him. Help us, Lord, to look to Jesus as we leave here this day. Give us the grace to do that. Lord, you know our failings. We thank you for grace that as we do fail, as we confess our sins, you're faithful and just. We thank you for that. So we depend upon your grace for the remainder of this day. As we continue to worship you in song, may we do so for your glory. And we pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.